thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. I'd like to uh, start by a little appreciation of the wonder of Sam. It takes an awful lot gluing these things together, and he does it year in, year out. It's absolutely fantastic. Big round of applause for the wonder that is Sam. Uh, I feel a bit of a fraud finishing off. This has been a, an enormously wonderful day, and my brain is full. Um, bit of context. I've been an NHS doctor for 30 years. I was a GP for 20 years. I now work in a specialist clinic for young people with chronic fatigue. I've uh, been a comedian for 26 years, an investigative journalist for Private Eye for 24 years, and a BBC presenter for 20 years. It's actually all the same job. It's all talking and listening. Uh, but quick show of hands. How many people here are positive optimistic, full of joy and wonder and hope for the future. Put your hand up. Excellent. And who works in the NHS? <laughs> Same people, I don't believe you. Okay, so we're going to do something about what is it that's so wonderful about caring and compassion. We've talked about this recurrent theme, this vertical theme that's run through the day, compassion and kindness. And yet, we kill the very people who are supposed to care for us through work-related stress. It's extraordinary that the NHS is so important, and yet it's such a difficult place to work in. So we're going to touch on that, but before we, uh, we kick off, we're going to kick off with the meaning of life. Uh, it's a little subtle question, um, but I thought about it recently because my son... My son is not like me. I'm an aggressive, competitive overachiever, uh, or a doctor, as we call them. Uh, <laughs> My son is training to be a primary school teacher. He was deeply affected by things that happened in France. He was affected by Donald Trump. He's got quite miserable about it. And he said, Dad, what's the meaning of life? And you know when your kids ask you those difficult questions? I'm quite good at the, the clinical ones. Long-acting reversible contraception, I'm particularly good at. <laughs> but the meaning of life is a tough one for me. And then I thought back. I can remember asking my dad that. I can remember sleeping out under the stars the enormity of the universe. My dad teaching me all the constellations. He was a scientist, very academic man. And I once asked him out there, sleeping under the stars, what the meaning of life was, and he went, Philip, he was Australian, by the way, did you spot that? <laughs> we were out in the bush, I said, Dad, what's the meaning of life? He went, Philip, there is no great purpose. There is no grand design. We're all slowly returning to room temperature. <laughs> that is the wonder of the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, but I thought I had to offer my son something a little bit more on these troubled times. Uh, <laughs> So I had a little think, and I said, you know, Will, the one thing I think I've learned in my 54 years on this planet is that we exist to love and be loved. Do you not think? Sounds a bit trite, doesn't it? But essentially, we exist to love and be loved. But because we're British and we don't generally talk outside this conference, we don't talk about the things that matter, death, grief, sexual health, mental health, uh, it's important to remind ourselves of that. It's a bit cold in here. Some of you are being cryogenically preserved. Uh... <laughs> but our carbon footprint is commendably low, so we can be proud of that. But just to warm ourselves up, we're going to play, a bit of audience participation, we're going to play what I like to call Dr. Phil's love game. <laughs> now, you'll know that consent is a very important concept when you're playing love games, so this is entirely optional. You might sit there going, that's disgusting, I didn't come here to play Dr. Phil's love game. You might think love is far too deeper a construct to be trivialised in this way. But if you'd like to, because we're all atheists, we have never get to do that hugging thing in church, do we? Because we're atheists. So just turn to the person next to you. You've got a choice left and right. You can have a threesome here in the freezing dark in Cheltenham. <laughs> Try to look them meaningfully in the eye. Have some meaningful connection. Give them a little hug and say, I love you. Go on, give it a go. I love you. I love you. I bloody love you. <laughs> I can't see a thing. I have no idea what's going on. It's just a mass orgy in the mosh pit. It's amazing, isn't it? Okay, that's enough. Shh. 
We love each other and actually think, why do we love the NHS? Why do we love the NHS? We do because it was founded on love. It's what glues us together as a compassionate society. It's why our public services are so important. When Nye Bevan found the NHS in 1948, he said, despite our economic and financial anxieties, we can do the most civilised thing in the world, which is to put the care of the sick above every other consideration. It was founded on love, and it's, in essence, what we're saying with the NHS, by pooling our risk and pooling our money, we're not only saying to our neighbour, I love you, we're saying, but when you get sick, you can have some of my money. So just try that one. Turn to someone you don't know, turn to them in the audience, <laughs> say, I love you, and when you get sick, you can have some of my money. Not so keen on that in Cheltenham, are we? That's in essence. Why is the NHS under strain? Well, we sort of know why the NHS is under strain. Partly it's a victim of its own success. When it was founded in 1948, half of us died before the age of 65. Now, one in three people born today will live to the age of 100. That's not just down to the NHS, largely, actually. That's improvements in social care. The person who lives to 150 has already been born. I don't think it's you, sir. <laughs> Don't be too disappointed. <laughs> he may be out there, but demand for healthcare services and social care services rises about 6% a year, year on year. It's absolutely really important. And yet, under this government and the coalition before, we will have had 10 years of flatline funding. We've got a huge, huge black hole. And if we don't protest, we've talked a lot about stuff that matters. We've got to start doing. How many people here were born in the NHS? Born in the NHS, I was... Louder! Born in the NHS, I was... Oh, you're good, aren't you? You're very good. Okay, we're going to do what I call the Wurzels NHS chant, okay? I'm going to go, who's NHS? And you're going to go, ah, NHS. Half Wurzels, half chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Can you do that for me? You ready? Who's NHS? You're very good. Are you ready to take it up a notch? It's our NHS, get your hands off it. It's not for sale and it's not for profit. Ooh. Ooh. It's gone a bit political, hasn't it? <laughs> don't have to shout it. You might think farming out the NHS to Virgin or Tesco is a lovely idea, but uh, if you don't, line after line. It's our NHS. Get your hands off it. Get your hands off it's it. Not it's not for sale. And it's not for profit. All together, it's our NHS, get your hands off it. It's not for sale and it's not for profit. Our NHS is not for merging. Keep it public. Kick out Virgin. <laughs> I've been doing all those chants because I'd actually like to play tribute to the wonder of junior doctors. You might think they've lost. They haven't. These fantastic junior doctors uh, put their, their, perhaps their careers on the line to shout up. They're the canaries in the mine. Uh, they're the, the smoke alarms on the front line of the NHS who say, we don't safely staff the NHS. We can't safely staff what we're doing at the moment. What is a truly seven-day NHS? I don't know. I'm really, really proud of the junior doctors. Give them a big round of applause. Weren't they fantastic? <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen to our NHS, but I do think we need to take uh, the pressure off it from the bottom end. So as well as loving each other, uh, one of the important things, I think, to save the NHS is learning to look out for ourselves and each other. Uh, my motto, the, my family motto in Australia was Sioso. Sioso means sort your own shit out. It's a very macho Australian thing. Uh, and it doesn't always work, particularly with mental health conditions, but it's an interesting motto. But <laughs> roughly about 70% of what we can do 
uh, to prevent ourselves getting ill actually comes down to our lifestyle and our life circumstance. The NHS probably only adds, and, and, and technological medicine probably only adds about 30%. The human body has evolved this marvelous machine that generally sorts itself out if you give it time. So it's really important that we know how to pleasure ourselves sensibly, to enjoy our lives and to take the pressure off the NHS. How many people here would say they pleasure themselves sensibly already? Put your hand. <laughs> okay, so we're now going to do Dr. Phil's Pleasure Pledge. Once again, it's entirely voluntary. If you don't wish to do it, don't. But if you'd like to, I'd invite you to join hands with your neighbours like a human love chain. So if you can do that, join hands with neighbours. And repeat after me, repeat after me. I pledge to pleasure myself in a safe and sustainable way. <laughs> After three, one, two, three. I pledge to pleasure myself in a safe and sustainable way. Give yourselves a round of applause. You save yourselves and you save the innocent. Now, how do you pleasure yourself in a safe and sustainable way? The answer's in here. Now. This is interesting. We have studied every species uh, on every known universe, and we've come up with the safest, sustainable, most sustainable, happiest uh, species ever invented, and it's these little fellas. Anyone under 30 is probably thinking, what the hell is Dr. Phil doing here? The Clangers, first ever children's colour TV programme, 1968. Oliver Postgate, lovely old pacifist, socialist green. He lived in the garden shed. He came up with Nog in the Nog. He came up with Bagpuss, Ivor the Engine, and the Clangers. Why were the Clangers so fantastic? We were about to go to the moon in 1969. He was asked to come up with the first colour TV programme. Uh, and he came up with these... They were originally moon mice. They lived on what was known as a blue planet. But rather lovely. Uh, clangers are all very different. And what was lovely about them... This was the Clanger, knitted by my mum doesn't actually make a clanging sound, but all clangers are different. That's what I like about it. So your clangers are very different to my clangers. So here's my family of clangers. But they were all slightly overweight. They didn't really give a toss about what they looked. They wore homemade clothes. There was no social media on the blue cat. They weren't constantly comparing themselves to other people and cutting themselves because they didn't feel happy about how they should be. There was no Jeremy Hunt. There was no Donald Trump. It was a fantastic, idyllic existence. They lived a very safe and sustainable existence. They were often challenged. They had a challenge. They weren't afraid to drop clangers and make a mistake. Uh, they all hugged each other. They all learned from their experience. And it was just lovely, just a beautiful vision. We were talking earlier about those old-style uh, children's programs. Uh, Oliver Poskate was probably the voice uh, of my childhood. I can remember his very slow narration of those stories because it was stop-frame photography. It allowed time for the stories to breathe for you to use your imagination. And they really did use their imagination. A dragon would land on the blue planet and it would lay an egg and the egg would hatch and a musical note would come out and they'd plant the musical note and it would make a musical tree. It was just fantastic. They were always making stuff out of elastic bands and little uh, bits of string. There was, oh, there was free soup for everyone, wasn't there, from the soup dragon. Blue string pudding. It was low-style socialist propaganda for kids, wasn't it? Everyone got the soup according to their needs. There was no money. There was no politics as everyone looked out for each other. Okay, so that's the clangers. Now, here's the spooky thing. This is the only thing I've learned in my 54 years on this planet, and it's not nearly as deep and moving as some of the stuff you've heard today, but this I'm going to pass on to you because I use this therapeutically, okay? Clangers is an acronym for what you need to do to be a clanger. And if we were all clangers, we'd A, be much happier, but we would halve the demand on health and social care services. That's quite a, quite a, a boast I'm making. You ready for this? Clangers! Connect, learn, be active, notice, give back, eat, well, relax, sleep. Ooh. Connect, learn, be active, notice, give back, eat well, relax, sleep. I have this theory, if we all did our daily clangers, we would be happier as Larry. Now, clangers, the connection's really important. What have we done today? We've connected. 
on quite a deep level over lots of really important issues. We are social animals, human beings. We exist to feel part of something bigger. If you hold hands with your mum, who holds hands with her mum, who holds hands with her mum, in about five miles, you get back to your ape ancestors. We're all leaves on the death tree. We're all going to die. It's really important we realize that. As soon as we realize we're all going to die, we start planning for it, it becomes much easier. So we can clang today at Medicine Unbox. We can clang in a social network. We can clang in a football team. We can clang with our families. The flip side of that is that illness disconnects you. It isolates you. We know that loneliness is as bad for you as 15 cigarettes a day. Uh, old people living on their own. One of the reasons I get people to hug each other is I did the biggest gig I've ever done. We have this great thing called the Slapstick Festival in Bristol. Anyone been to that? And they have this fundraiser for it every year, and they get some really big comedians like Al Murray on the top of the bill. And I was like the local comedian who was allowed to come on at the end. I've never performed in front of a 1,000 people, and I got everyone to hug each other. I then got a repeat booking the next year, and I'm going in there, and this old boy comes to me. He goes, Dr. Fowl, are you going to do that thing you did last year where you got everyone to hug each other? <laughs> and I said, well, probably not, because I got a few complaints. Not everybody liked that. And he said, well, I do wish you would do it, Dr. Fowl, because that's the only hug I've had all year. We forget there are people there who go for an entire year without any human contact. You might get a little brush of the hand against the palm as you're handing your, your change over in the newsagents, but they go for an entire year. So feel free to have another look down your row. If you see someone who's looking particularly <laughs> hug-deprived, you can slip one in at any stage in the next 15 minutes or so. Connection's really important, but as we talked earlier, connect with yourself. Now, this is a tough one, isn't it? How many people here would say they love themselves? Put your hand up. Regularly without using your hands. <laughs> Healthcare begins with self-care. Self-care begins with self-compassion. It sounds nap. It sounds very American psychobabble. It sounds narcissistic personality disorder. But actually, you have to love yourself in order to love other people. It's really, really important. But because we're British, we won't talk about that. So here's another way of putting it. How many people here can disappear inside their head at the end of an evening on their own and quite like what they find there? Yeah. Who can get through the night without three bottles of wine and Netflix? Yeah. It's a good test. So love yourself. It then becomes, when you're on it, becomes solitude rather than loneliness. So loving yourself is really important. And then it's not just connecting with other people. You connect with your planet. You can connect with your pets. You can connect with your plants. Really important connection. Learn. Who has learned stuff today? Whose brain is full? I've learned stuff. I've had so many extraordinary insights. My brain is full, but it's wonderful, isn't it? We're curious people are happy people. People get out of bed in the morning because they keep their curiosity alive. I'm fascinated by lying at the moment, not just amongst politicians, but generally. I think human beings have evolved to lie better than any other species, and we lie to other people all the better to lie to ourselves. So our Facebook pages, our memories are actually like a Wikipedia page. We continually edit our memories to edit out the stuff we don't like to make us seem better or more successful than we really are. Uh, and I had a zoologist on my radio show. I do a radio show for, for BBC Bristol. And we were talking about lying amongst plants and animals. We all know about the orchid that has evolved to, to have a flower that looks like the sexual parts of the bee. So the bee comes along and says, yeah, I'll have some of that. And that's fine. That's very clever. We know about cuckoos coming in and laying their eggs and then kicking, uh, kicking out the reed warbler's egg. But I didn't know until recently that the cuckoo lays an egg that's identical to the reed warbler's egg in its markings. How clever is that? And when then the cuckoo comes out, it makes a sound exactly the same as a baby reed warbler with three times the gape and three times the volume. So it gets three times the food. That's incredibly clever. We talked about capuchin monkeys earlier. They are the best liars. Now, this zoologist was working with capuchin monkeys. They have language for different foods. And he says, if one's outside the enclosure and all the rest are inside, and they go out and they take the bloke who's outside, the monkey outside, some food. They give him some mango. And mango's a real treat for the capuchin monkeys. So he looks at the mango, and he shouts to his mates, cabbage! And all the other monkeys go, bollocks, I'm not going outside for some cabbage. <laughs> he eats all the mango himself, and here's the clever bit. 
he pisses on his hands to take away the smell of the mango so the other monkeys don't beat him up. Isn't that incredible? If Capuchin monkeys are pissing on their hands, imagine what Donald Trump, Nigel Farage, <laughs> fucking Jeremy Hunt, all the other part, they spend their entire life pissing on their hands, taking away the stain of the lies. So don't be surprised that we lie, we lie. So connect, learn, be active. How many people who do 30 minutes of aerobic exercise every day? That sounds dull, actually, doesn't it? What you need to do is activities that make you clang. Connect, learn, be active, notice, give back. A park run will do that. Singing music will do that. Dance will do that. It's really important you do stuff that also connects you at the same time, otherwise you won't keep doing it. We know physical activity is really good for mental health. It's better for you than any amount of statins and blood pressure pills. It's the most wonderful intervention ever invented, and yet we don't do it consistently because we don't do activities that make us clang. Uh, I'm actually a big fan of dogs. How many people have dogs? I have a theory. If I could prescribe dogs on the NHS to people who loved them and wanted one, we would make huge inroads into health. Really good evidence base for dogs. If you hug a dog, it reduces your blood pressure. Fact. They also reduce your cholesterol by eating your food. <laughs> they look at you. Your husband doesn't look at you. Your doctor doesn't look at you. A dog will look at you, and it will keep looking at you until you take it out for a walk. It's amazing, isn't it? You're not stuck in some sweaty, soulless gym. You've got the blue sky. You've got the green fields. You've got a social circle. Every other dog walker you meet as a friend. Isn't that extraordinary? Dogs keep you supple as you bend over to pick up the poo. And if you're too depressed to put your pants on in the morning, they'll lick your testicles. You don't get that at the doctors, do you? <laughs> oh, it's probably private patients only, that one, isn't it? Private patients only. <laughs> the point is, do an activity that makes you clang, and you will keep doing it. Cooking, another great thing for clanging. Gardening, great for clanging. Connect, learn, be active, notice. Notice. Who has noticed the mindfulness industry? A lot of money in mindfulness. Mindfulness just means noticing something. Mindfulness just means being in the moment, enjoying the beauty of the world around you without having to judge it. And we're not very good at that. Uh, just have a look at one of someone's to the left of you, look at the person to the left of you, and just notice their beauty. Just fill up your senses with their beauty. Don't try and diagnose them. They might be a little bit jaundiced, they might have a basal cell carcinoma, they might have a slightly hairy top lip or low set ears, forget all that. Just fill up your senses with the beauty of the person next to you. Smell them, what do they smell like? Taste the person next to you, taste them. That's mindfulness. Of course, you can do it with a raisin, you can do it with your breathing, you can do it with the autumn leaves. It means life is a balance of being and doing. If you want to be happy, often you just be. And we lose that until we get older and then we realize, actually, activity isn't always the thing I need to be as well. Connect, learn, be active, notice, give back. Uh, we talked about the crucial role of compassion. My auntie Queenie used to say lots of things. Let compassion be your compass, you go, follow. In fact, she used to drop these little ladies, she'd go, follow. Variety is the spice of life. Moderation in all things. Philip, healthy mind, healthy body. Philip, always take time to smell the roses. Philip, long and thin goes too far in, short and thick does the trick. Said I'm only seven, Auntie Quinn, you got no idea what you're talking about. But she used to say, let compassion be your compass, you won't go far wrong, which is true, isn't it? The reason. I went into medicine, probably, is because Dame Cicely Saunders, founder of the hospice movement, came to talk at my school uh, when I was a teenager and showed cine films of people dying in a hospice having fun. There were people dancing, there were people singing, there were people sketching. Yes, there were tears as well. But she had this concept of the good death. She said it's perfectly possible to have a good death. She said the joy of being human is to be humane. The biggest gift we could give to people in society, there is a wonder in a good death. 
giving people a good death. We need to just reflect on that slightly later. But giving back doesn't need to be money. It'd be good to fund the NHS. How many people here, if they knew the money was going to go on frontline care that was proven to work, who would be happy putting an extra two pence on their income tax for health and social care? Yes, I've never met an audience who wouldn't, and yet nobody's allowing to do this. We're allowing the NHS to collapse like a souffle. The Tories are quite happy with that because they believe the NHS is a service for poor people, and anyone who has money should buy private health insurance. But the trouble is there are no private any services. There is no you know, private GPs, or very few. It's an absolute disaster. Rabid austerity is an absolute disaster. We have to protest about it. Austerity is just a very clever way of killing people who are unlikely to vote conservative. <laughs> Give back. My mate went up to the Intercontinental Hotel in uh, Glasgow, where he does a lot of business, uh, and uh, he was in there. And there was a chap talking to the head waiter, saying, look, my son's been coming up to Glasgow for chemotherapy. He's on his fourth round. Uh, it's not very successful, so we're going to give it one more go. And he hates the drugs, he hates the needles, he hates the sickness. So in solidarity with him, I've decided to shave my head. So when I come down in the morning, I'm going to be bald. He obviously doesn't have any hair. Just telling you so it doesn't freak out you or the rest of the waiters. And the head waiter said, yeah, that's fine. My mate said he came down to breakfast in the morning, and as the dad walked in with his son, both bald, they looked around the restaurant. Every single waiter had shaved his head. <laughs> These were probably Eastern European workers on zero-hours contracts who didn't know this person for Adam. They just wanted to make that compassionate gesture, and it really does make a difference. Connect, learn, be active, notice, give back, eat well. Who eats well? Who knows what eating well is? The evidence is very confusing. The Japanese eat less fat than us and have fewer heart attacks. The French eat more fat than us, fewer heart attacks. The Japanese drink less red wine than us and have fewer heart attacks. The French drink more red wine than us, fewer heart attacks. In fact, you can eat and drink as you like. It's speaking English that kills you. <laughs> it's absolute bollocks. Absolute bollocks. Politicians tell lies for a living, comedians tell lies for laughs, okay? That's absolute bollocks, but what you put in your mouth is fundamental to your health in all sorts of ways. In terms of food, Mediterranean diet, we know fruit, veg, nuts, seeds, olive oil, uh, sustainable fish, a bit of lean meat isn't bad, a bit of dark chocolate, a bit of red wine is fine. But basically, we've been talking about diversity in the planet. Your gut is like a garden. You have your microbiome, these trillions of bugs that speak to each other and are as essential to your health as your DNA. The bacteria in the gut. We know that people who are unhealthy, have chronic diseases, often have a very narrow range of bacteria in their gut. So treat your, don't just eat carrots, try to eat your rainbow of different fruit and veg. They've taken the poo uh, out of fat mice and put it in thin mice. It makes the thin mice fat. They've taken the poo out of uh, anxious mice and put it in happy mice. It makes the happy mice anxious. Now, you could argue that having a strange mouse's poo squirted up you <laughs> could make you slightly anxious. There's always a confounding variable in there. Well, I think there's a lot in our poo, uh, and uh, happy poo. Don't have your antibiotics. Don't take high-dose multivitamins. It's like torpedoing your gut. Take whatever you can in food, if you can. Mediterranean diet in the right portion. So a portion size should fit in your cupped hands. Uh, if you don't know what a portion size is, turn the plate over and eat on the underside. That's a portion. But remember, primarily, food is for pleasure. We should enjoy our food, OK? So connect, learn, be active, notice, give back, eat well, relax. Who consciously relaxes at the end of the day? Takes time out to relax. Yeah, it's really important. We're not good at that. We're tired and wired and caffeinated all the time. Relaxation and recovery is essential. My wonderful dad, he got a scholarship to go to Cambridge from Australia. He was one of Australia's top physical chemists. He had the brain the size of a planet, but he was a workaholic. He captained all Australian universities' basketball team. He looked beautiful. He was an amazing man, but he couldn't stop working, couldn't stop torturing the data, as academics do. could never take his foot off. The family motto was 
sort your own shit out, toughen the fuck up. Australian men didn't talk about their feelings. He suffered from clinical depression. I had no idea he suffered from depression. He didn't tell anyone. He locked himself in the lab one day uh, at the age of 38 and took his life, took cyanide. Uh, now, I'll talk about that later, but what was interesting is that his brother, Uncle Ron, lived to about 90-odd years old. Dad was brilliant, published a whole load of stuff, tortured with periodic despair, achieved a huge amount. Uncle Ron, happy as Larry, achieved absolutely nothing in his life. <laughs> My best memories of Uncle Ron, he used to sit on the, the veranda in West Leadable, he used to have a rocking chair, and I'd go around and visit him, because my dad was always working at weekends, so I'd go and spend the weekend with Uncle Ron, and I'd say, just look at the view. I'd say, what are we doing today, Uncle Ron? He'd say, just looking at the clouds there, look at those lovely clouds. Beautiful cloud. Amusing looking twig there, there you go. Funny shaped bird over there, if you have a look. And that's all he would do, would look at the clouds. Every now and then, a little challenge would come his way. A little challenge, and Uncle Ron would always go, oh, fuck it. <laughs> now, I'm not saying fuck it is the appropriate response in every single situation. If your kids are dying in a house fire, somebody's had a cardiac arrest, fuck it won't cut it, okay? But to fill our brains with wonder, to leave space in our brains for all the wonderful stuff we've heard today, we have to decommission the crap. I don't know what hierarchy you work in, but whether you're public sector, private sector, self-employed, I bet 80% of the stuff that lands in your inbox is bollocks, isn't it? It's written in that awful government McKinsey key performance indicator synergy management bollocks speak. You can't understand it. You can't see how you, your friends, your family, your patients, your pupils will benefit from it. I used to be chair of governors of my local primary school in North Somerset. I won't tell you exactly where, but we'd had two very good Ofsted inspections. But the one thing I didn't tell the Ofsted inspector is that we used to make every Friday fuck it Friday. Every member of staff would take the top 80% of their intray, they'd have a glass of white wine, we'd stand around the shredder, and we'd feed it in the shredder, go fuck it, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. So whatever you do to live, strive, and survive, I want you to promise me you will make every Friday Fuck It Friday. Can you do that? <laughs> fuck It Friday, daily clangers, five portions of fun on top of your five portions of fruit and veg. It's really important. So the relaxation thing is great. Uncle Ron used to have a sitting room that was just for sitting. And at the... <laughs> it had no screens in it. At the end of the day, I swear, he would come out of the veranda, he'd sit in the sitting room, and he would relive the happy thoughts from the day, the amusing-looking twig, the funny-shaped... Cloud, the odd-looking bird, how much he loved Auntie Queenie. And we used to think he was mad. He would talk to himself. We think he's away with the fairies. In fact, we now know he was practicing positive psychology. <laughs> we know that people who really live happy things have gratitude for the good things in their lives and are generally a bit happier. Now, it's not as simple as saying think positive. I hate those bollocks books that say just think positive. We evolved to think negatively to keep us safe. Science works by forming a hypothesis and then negatively trying to prove it wrong. If you tried to cross a busy street with positive thinking, you'd get knocked over fairly quickly, wouldn't you? If you ever got to use a parachute, you want to pray the person who put that parachute together was a negative thinker, not somebody who went, oh, fuck it, that'll be fine. <laughs> negative thinking keeps us safe. Positive thinking keeps us happy. We need the two in balance. You go to negative, you get depression. Uh, when I discovered the truth, the interesting thing about my dad is that I didn't discover the truth about my dad's dead, death until 30 years later. And I do a whole show about this, which you're welcome to come. It's doing, touring the country at the moment, so I won't give you why that happened. But what was interesting, having talked about my dad's death, uh, the BBC asked me to make a show about uh, with interviewing young men who'd attempted suicide but mercifully not completed, as they say. And I interviewed this lovely young man who talked about his depression. And it was a really interesting metaphor. He said, my depression is like a gremlin that lives in the box at the end of the garden. And I know he's there all the time. I talk to him every day. I say, stay in the box, stay in the box, stay in the box. 
And nine times out of ten, I can keep him in the box. And then sometimes I see the claws coming out. And I say, stay in the box, stay in the box. And sometimes I can keep him there. But sometimes I just can't stop him. And he crawls along the garden. He goes up my shoulder, sits on my shoulder. And he said, this is the thing I want you to understand about depression. He said, depression is a liar. It tells you lies. He sits on my shoulder and he says, your life is worthless. You'll never amount to anything. You'd be better off dead. Your friends and family would be happier if you were dead. And if you have depression and you get this cycle of suicidal ideation and you have nobody to break it, it's very easy to act on those impulses. Because real men don't get depressed, we toughen the fuck up, we don't talk about our feelings, we sort our own shit out. It's quite easy for men to act on those impulses while it is still the commonest cause of death in men under 45. And it spikes every time there's a recession uh, because men feel they should provide and when they can't provide they feel awful about it. This young man said, I broke the cycle, I have one friend that I could call. Uh, and she said, don't be stupid, I love you, and gave me a hug, and that was it. That broke the cycle. So it's really important we seek help, and we don't always try to sort our own shit out. Uh, so uh, depression is something that it's, in some stage of our lives will afflict all of us, but most of it will come out of it. But that, that thing, that suicidal thing can be broken in some people, but not all. In some people, at the time that they take their lives, it feels like the most rational decision in the world. I love my dad, and I was very proud of what he's achieved. I don't think any less of him because he took his life because he was tortured by an unpleasant illness. Connect, learn, be active, notice, give back, eat well, relax, sleep. How many people here get at least five and a half hours sleep a night? Five and a half? Who gets less? Margaret Thatcher famously says sleep was for wimps. Uh, so did Joseph Stalin uh, <laughs> and Donald Trump. So interesting Venn diagram you're living. Sleep is like the antivirus software on your computer. It clears out all the crap, but you need the right amount at the right time. If you can't sleep, try to anchor your sleep. Try and get up at the same time every day, including weekends. It's tough, but you'll... Your battery, internal battery, likes that routine. Now, daily clangor sounds really simple, doesn't it? We can all do connect, learn, be active, notice, give back, eat well, relax, sleep. It sounds simple. It's not, is it? If you're living with depression or domestic abuse or drug addiction or, or debt or, or you're a junior doctor who's just come off 13-hour nights and Jeremy Hunt is sticking you on 13-hour days to have his truly seven-day service, it's really hard doing your daily clangers. So it becomes a political issue. We should actually vote for the party that maximizes the most clangers amongst the most people. I think it's a really important issue. The final thing, having talked about the wonder of life, I just want to touch on the wonder of death. A couple of observations to make. Um, the first is that we lose people as we get older. And one of the first really close friends I lost was a chap called Miles Kington, who was a brilliant writer, humorous writer. He was the bass player in Instant Sunshine, a prolific uh, columnist. And he taught me the secret of humor. He said, the secret of humor is like the knight's move in chess. It comes along and it hits you from the side. So sometimes you can see a punchline coming over the hills. Sometimes it hits you from the side. Miles said, knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put one in a fruit salad. <laughs> he woke up far too young uh, in his early 60s yellow. When people wake up suddenly yellow, it's usually a bad thing. He had a mass at the head of the pancreas. We know pancreatic cancer is horrible because it's usually spread by the time it's caught. Yes, it had spread. He looked at the odds of having a big Whipple's operational chemotherapy. Decided against it. He said, instead of chemotherapy, I'm going to have whiskey and morphine, which is what most doctors would choose in that situation. But he wanted to write an uplifting book about dying from cancer. He said, there are lots of sad books out there. And he wrote this book called How Shall I Tell the Dog? The title came from the fact that usually when you have a pet, the deal is you're going to outlive your pet. So how are you going to tell your dog you're going to die before him? And it had lots of really funny insights. So he wrote, uh, could the experience of dying from cancer be included in the Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme? <laughs> But I remember going around to see him, and he was quite yellow at this time, uh, and he had these stigmata on his palms. Now, I know we're not believers here, but I said, Miles, this is amazing. They've made you into a saint already. And he said, if only you could understand what you'll learn if you ever get cancer is you lose weight. And you lose weight, you get down to your last pair of trousers and your last belt. 
And finally, you get down to the last belt hole on your belt, and you think there's no point buying another belt because I've got metastatic cancer and I'm going to die. So you take your existing belt and you try and make an extra hole <laughs> with a skewer, and you end up with stigmata. So if you want a funny book, uh, I would recommend that. Uh, my mum came back to England after my dad died and married a wonderful builder called Stan, who became my second dad for 45 years, and he was lovely. He used to go, found, just do what you're good at and do what you enjoy. He had a very simple philosophy. He was half my first dad and half Uncle Ron. He would work really hard as a builder, and he would get to the evening, he'd go, fuck it. He had a really good work-life balance. He came back from a walking holiday at 84 and suddenly turned yellow. Pancreatic cancer spread by the time we've got it. He looked at the odds. He decided, no, I don't want chemotherapy. I don't want an operation. I'll have whiskey and morphine and a stent to relieve the jaundice. He had a lovely oncologist in Bath who said, well, actually, we'd like to do a biopsy. And Stan said, well, there's no point. I'm not going to have any chemotherapy or anything. It'll be uncomfortable. It'll be expensive. Why do you want to do a biopsy? And the oncologist said, we'd like to name the tumour. So Stan said, what about Dolores? <laughs> Stan called his pancreatic cancer Dolores and lived for eight months, of which six months were fabulous. He, had, he stopped his statins and his blood pressure pills. He ate like a horse. He put weight on with pancreatic cancer. Best ever Christmas, half a turkey, bottle of red wine, Christmas onesie. He walked up the hill, told all his mates he loved them, uh, which was lovely. He told, I thoroughly recommend talking to people while they're dying because they tell you the best stories. He told me some family secrets that I really can't share with you, but they were really good. Six fabulous months, and then it became too painful to eat. And he thought, right, I'm going to stop eating. I will die fairly quickly. Now, you'll know that that isn't always the case. He was a tough old uh, Wiltshireman. Uh, and from the day that he stopped eating, it took him eight weeks to die. Uh, six weeks without any food at all, two weeks without fluid. He just gradually... Now, we had good palliative care. We had as good a death as you can legally have on the NHS. He had lovely... He had a hospital bed at home. He was in the room he wanted. There was a window open. He could see the view. He could hear the farm outside. Great palliative care nurses. Uh, great on-call team. Great GP. Great doses of diamorphine and midazolam, but tough as old boots, Stan. He just went on and on and on, got thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner until he was almost unrecognizable from Stan. The only other death I'd witnessed in my family was my Uncle Ron. My Uncle Ron actually died on the patio in his rocking chair. I'd like to... I think he just went, oh, fuck it, and that was it. <laughs> but he died suddenly, and he looked discernibly like Uncle Ron. He had slightly bluish discoloration of lips, but there was Uncle Ron. He was dead. Auntie Queenie didn't even call the undertaker. She brought him indoors, stuck him in the sitting room in his chair. All the grandkids came round, were playing at his feet while Uncle Ron was dead in the chair. That was my vision of how a home death would be, but it wasn't for Stan. He didn't go quickly. He went on and on and on and on. Had assisted dying been legal, I would have happily assisted his death, but it wasn't, so legal, you know, I just sat back and just watched it. But I thought, God, this isn't quite right. And I talked about it on Radio Bristol, and I went down to Pretty Folk Festival uh, uh, shortly afterwards, and this farmer came up to me and said, Dr. Fell, I heard what you said on the radio about your dad. And that rang a lot of bells with me, because that's exactly what happened to my dad. My dad's a farmer, tough as old boots, got cancer. We wanted to nurse him at home, and we nursed him, and he went on and on and on and on and on. And towards the end, it was like skin stretched out over bone. He was a little husk of a man, and we thought, that's not human. That shouldn't happen in this country. We're not rich people. We can't afford to go to Switzerland. So we had a family conference. We all got round the table, and we had a talk about it. And in our family, we've come up with this thing called Kling Film Assisted Suicide. <laughs> I said, what does that involve? It says, well, we've all agreed to this. We've all agreed to this in advance. What we do, Dr. Fell, is when somebody goes to that stage where they're beyond the point of no return, you know that they're not coming back. What we do is we wrap one sheet of cling film around their head and we leave them to it. If they still have the will to pull off the sheet of cling film, they can, or they can die just a bit more quickly. We've seen a couple of people in our family off that way, Dr. Fell. 
it works very effectively. You're, you're more than happy to share that with your listeners on BBC Radio Bristol if you'd like. Slightly fills me with despair. I don't like the term assisted suicide because what happened to my first dad, but I do think there is something in assisted dying. But before we get to assisted dying, and I don't like the word palliative care either, we need to fund the bookends of life. Those anthropological bookends of life, birth and death, used to happen in the home, and we weren't scared of them. How many people here born at home? Yeah, and death. Death should happen at home, but it should happen in a gentle way, and everyone should get good palliative care. So my friends who work in that field say, often you get people who are very distressed, want to end it now, and when you stabilize their symptoms, give them some love, you realize they happily will go on for a few months. But once people get beyond the point of no return, I think there's something to be said uh, for helping them go. So those are my thoughts on a good life and a wonderful death. It's what I would want for myself. Um, Joe, my wife Joe, uh, is a GP, and we've stocked up some drugs, and Joe and I have a little s sort of pact with each other. First one of us to put CDs in the toaster. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> Anyone here from the General Medical Council while we're here? <laughs> so, final thoughts. What have I learned today? I've learned so much today. The psychedelia I love. I'd love to give our politicians psychedelic drugs. That would open their minds to the possibilities of connection. Bill Hicks, my favorite comedian, used a lot of psychedelic drugs to uh, open his mind. I love people who are just honest about shit that's happened in their lives. And that's how we learn stories and metaphors for our lives. That's how we learn. I've learned so much that's going to help me be a better doctor and a better person today. So thank you so much for inviting me. My final thought will go to my GP trainer. People are very affected by their trainers. And uh, I initially trained as a GP before I worked in chronic fatigue. And my trainer was a Yorkshireman called Brian who retired the year after he had me. It could have been cause and effect, but it's a small sample. And I said, sum up your 40 years as a GP. And Brian went... Saved two, killed one. <laughs> no, actually, it was the other way around. <laughs> but that was in the days before we obsessively measured everything. We didn't have spreadsheets and targets and key performance indicators. Basically, medicine then was therapeutic gossip. People popped in to see you because it was on the way to the supermarket. You hugged them, you gave them a chat, off you went. You didn't know if you'd killed them or cured them. Uh, that was how medicine used to be. Uh, and whenever I used to make a mistake, Brian used to come around and put his arm around my shoulder. He'd go, don't worry, Phil. A medical degree is no substitute for clairvoyance. <laughs> Which is not so funny when it's read out in court. Uh, <laughs> but I once asked him for his metaphor for working in the NHS, and he went, oh, life is a pool of shit, and our job is to direct people to the shallow end. Um, <laughs> I think working in health and social care and most public services actually is camping out beside a river of shit. People fall into the river of illness. They can throw themselves in. They can fall in with no warning. It can happen to any of us. But increasingly, because of technology, we are diving in deeper and deeper and deeper and pulling out people who are sicker and sicker and sicker. We're almost treating the untreatable. When I trained, if somebody had dementia in the care home, you give them a tot of whiskey and a decent death. Now, we, you know, if they get a chest infection, we now refer them back into hospital. They have IV antibiotics. They slowly have the life sucked out of them on intensive care. We are all now living so long, we will probably all die of dementia. And unless we sort out death, that's going to be a huge challenge for us. So I have a big theory that instead of spending all this money pulling people out of the river of illness, I think we should wander upstream and stop them pushing, uh, falling in in the first place. And to do that, daily clangers, five portions of fun, hug each other, fuck it Friday. <laughs> Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you.